you open your Bibles uh, to Deuteronomy uh, 27 this morning? It's on page 196. Have those ready. We'll look at those in a moment. Uh, as uh, Seth said in his prayer, a uh, number of our youth are away at uh, camp this weekend, about 80 high school students away at the youth camp, another 20-some adults. And since our uh, youth are away, our teenagers are away, and my two teenagers are away, I thought this would be just a good time to kind of vent about teenagers a little bit. Um, you know, I, why, why do teenagers find it so necessary to always speak in the superlative? You know, with, with my teenagers, everything is either the best or it's the worst, you know? They're always speaking in such extremes. Uh, you, know, you know, I'll be like, hey, do you guys want to pick up some dinner? You want me to go buy Taco Bell? And, and one of them will say, oh, I love Taco Bell. It's the best. Taco Bell's awesome. And the other one will say, I hate Taco Bell. Taco Bell's the worst. Let's never go there. It's like, you know, I mean, Taco Bell's Taco Bell. It's probably not the best. It's probably not the worst. But it, it's, so, it's so extreme. They talk about music, and it's always love and hate, right? You know, do you like Lil Wayne? I love Lil Wayne. Oh, I hate Lady Gaga, or, or whatever it is. And uh, it's, it's just a funny thing. I suppose they can't be blamed in a soundbite culture where you have one chance to say something in a soundbite. How do you get people's attention unless it really is a little bit dramatic and, and overstated? Uh, you know, I've, I've listened to one of the presidential debates just to kind of see what's going on. And, you know, it's, I, I realize, okay, this actually is not a debate. This is an actual exchange of ideas. This is a soundbite contest. Where, where you're trying to get a zinger in or a one-liner that's going to make it onto the news that, that will somehow encapsulate something or overthrow the other person. Uh, but, but, you know, marketing is that way. You know, there's, nobody put, spends money on a commercial on TV to say their product is pretty good. It's always revolutionary, life-changing, award-winning, the latest thing. Uh, and, and what's kind of funny is in, in a culture where everything is either epic or apocalyptic, like nothing becomes epic or apocalyptic, like everything is, is kind of like, well, it's not really that big of a deal. We, we become desensitized to that language. It, it's like the old R.E.M. song, you know, it's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine because, you know, it's always the end of the world or it's always the best thing ever. So I, I struggle a little bit as we come to Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28 because as I was studying this, I feel that what we need to talk about this morning is actually the best thing ever. And what we have to talk about this morning is to actually study the worst thing ever. But I say that, and it sounds already kind of melodramatic and overblown. But, you know, logically, there has to actually be a best thing that human beings can experience or know. And logically, there actually has to be something that truly is the worst thing. Uh, and, and yet, we, we have a hard time believing that there is such a thing, because, I mean, everything is the best and the worst, right? But here it actually is. And so here's my, my proposition I want to put out on the table today. Uh, if there is an almighty God, then the best thing ever would be for that God to be for you, to be motivated for your good. That would be the best possible thing a human being could ever experience. 
And conversely, if there is an almighty God, I would like to argue that the worst possible thing a human being could ever experience would be for that God to be against you, to be motivated for your ill. I mean, what could be worse than that? To have all of the powers of omnipotence marshaled for your ruin. I, I can't think of anything worse. And when I think of best and worst situations in which one could find themselves, or to use the language that we're going to study in Deuteronomy today, the best possible thing in the world is for God to be eternally committed to blessing you. And the worst possible human experience would be for God to be eternally committed to cursing you. Today we come to Deuteronomy 27 and 28. I want to try to cover two chapters today. And this is the famous part of Deuteronomy. It's, it's the part of the blessings and the curses. Sort of in the study of Deuteronomy, this is a well-known movement in the book, the blessings and curses. And let me just read, uh, kind of step this up, verses 9 to 13, chapter 27, 9 to 13. It says, Then Moses and the priests, who are Levites, said to all Israel, Be silent, O Israel, and listen. You have now become the people of the Lord your God. Obey the Lord your God. And follow His commands and decrees that I give you today. On the same day Moses commanded the people, When you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. And these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebal to pronounce curses, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. So, so what's going on in this passage? Well, here's Moses. He's speaking to the Israelites for one of the last times. He's gearing them up to cross over into the promised land, across the Jordan River. And he's giving them final instructions, knowing that he is not going with them. And he's giving them final marching orders. And he's basically saying, when you get to the promised land, I want you to find these two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And they're actually these two mountains. They, they come down into a rounded valley. It, it actually looks kind of like an upside-down parabola. It makes it a natural amphitheater. Uh, homework assignment. Go home this afternoon to your computer. Go to Google Images. Don't do it now if you have a smartphone. But go to, go to Google Images. And I want you to Google Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. And I just want you to see it with your own eyes. And you could easily envision the six tribes of Israel all standing on one slope and the other six tribes of Israel standing on the other slope. And they're standing there. One side on Mount uh, Gerizim is speaking blessings. The other side on Mount Ebal is pronouncing curses to each other. And, and so you have this natural amphitheater where it actually is really good acoustics, where you could have a ceremony like this outdoors. Uh, so they're pronouncing blessings and curses. Okay, well, what's that all about? Blessings and curses. I mean, bless. We don't really say that today. I mean, when someone sneezes, right? God bless you. Uh, curses, you know, curses, that's like swearing. Of course, there was the curse of the Bambino, but that's gone. <laughs> so they're like, what? Like, what's a blessing and a curse all about? Blessings and curses were an integral part of ancient covenants. So when two groups of people made a covenant relationship together, like two human beings or two nations, a big king and a little king, and they made agreements together, in this covenant there would be a blessing and a curse. So let me give you kind of uh, Old Testament covenants 101. Uh, it, this is a little oversimplistic, but here's the basic layout. Uh, there were three parts to a covenant, generally speaking. Part number one was the historic review of everything God had done in the past or the person had done in the past to be faithful. 
It was kind of like, this is what brought us to this place. Let's review our history together. And then part number two was, these are the rules of the covenant. These are the blessings, these, or rather, these are the, the, the stipulations, these are the rules. For Israel, it was the Ten Commandments. This is how you're supposed to live. When a, a, a couple marries, you know, they take vows. They say, I'll love you, I'll protect you, I'll stick with you. Those are the, the rules of the covenant. And then the third part of the covenant were the blessings and curses, where people making covenant would actually stand and pray to the gods, or God, depending on the religion, and they would invoke a blessing on themselves for keeping the covenant, and then they would invoke a curse upon themselves for breaking the covenant. So they would basically pray and before the gods and take an oath, uh, you know, I swear I will keep this covenant, and if I do, may they bless me, and if they don't, may they curse me. So, so it was pretty intense. Um, and it's interesting, by the way, too, in Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy roughly follows a covenant outline. So chapters 1 through 4 of Deuteronomy are the historical review of what God had done to bring them to that point. Chapters 5 through 26 of Deuteronomy, the bulk of the book, are all the rules and regulations of what it means for Israel to be the people of God and live in a community with Him, including the Ten Commandments, but lots of other commandments. Then chapters 27 and 28 are the blessings and the curses, where Israel is going to invoke these curses upon themselves, with the basic idea being, if we don't, if we keep God's laws, He will bless us. If we don't, He will curse us. So look at verse 14. The Levites shall recite to all the people of Israel in a loud voice, and then they do these curses. Cursed is the man who carves an image or casts an idol, which is the first commandment, second commandment. Don't worship other gods. Don't make idols. So if you break the first two commandments, cursed is that man. Or uh, verse 16, here's the fifth commandment. Cursed is the man who dishonors his father or his mother. Then all the people shall say, Amen. So if you break the commandment, a curse. Or again, uh, just, just to kind of show you one more example. Verse 17, cursed is the man who moves his neighbor's boundary stone. Another law. And the people shall say, Amen. So you have these 12 curses here in chapter 27. You can read through them if you like. And, and, and again, it's if you break the law, the curse comes. If you keep the law, the blessing comes. That's the structure of chapter 28. Look at chapter 28, verse 2, where we get a detailed list of the actual blessings and curses. It says in chapter 28, verse 2, All these blessings will come upon you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. Obey, be blessed. And, verse 15, However, if you do not obey the Lord your God and do not carefully follow all His commands and decrees I'm given today, all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. So that in a relationship with God, there are blessings and there are curses. And it wasn't just true of Israel and Israel's historic moment. This is how it always is with God. There are blessings for obedience. There are curses for disobedience. Uh, you know, you go back to Adam and Eve, even in the Garden of Eden. You won't find the word covenant there, but you'll feel the kind of covenant rhythm there. It's, it's in the story. You know, think of Adam and Eve. God puts them in the Garden of Eden. He, he has a, a history with them, and He gives them the garden. He blesses them with a good creation. He gives them to each other. All of these things God has done in building His relationship with Adam and Eve. And then He gives them the commandments. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. 
guard the Garden of Eden, work the earth, and don't touch that tree over there. And then he, he threatens them with a curse. He says, if you eat of that tree on that day, you shall surely die. And Adam and Eve disobey. They don't guard the garden. They don't honor God. And they break the commandments. And so then what happens in chapter 3 of Genesis? The curses come. God curses the serpent. You're going to crawl on your belly. He curses the woman. You're going to bear children with pain. And he curses Adam. And he curses the ground. The ground is going to be tough to work. Your work is going to be cursed. And ultimately, you're going to return to the ground. And so death will come. And, and as people are, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the Garden of Eden, they're cut off from eternal life. And they live in the world that we know today, which is a world where, where the world is cursed with sin. And so we live in this world today, a world under the curse of God. At one level, the world is good because God made the world and He said it is good. And yet it's like this curse is on it. it, it it's, like, um, it's like an oil spill on clean water. You know, imagine a pool of clean, refreshing water, but imagine an oil spill covering it. So that if you were to take a cup and try to, to get clean water out of it, you, you never could because that oil is going to always taint whatever you try to scoop up. And, and that's how this world is. It's a good world that God's made, but there's this, this spill of, of sin and curse that just sticks to everything that we try to do. And it seems to undercut uh, even our best intentions. And even the noblest aspirations of human beings are always sort of hobbled by, by our natural sinful tendencies and by the curse of God that rests on the world. And ultimately, death is, is the final manifestation of this curse. So here we have this reality that to relate to God is to enter into a realm of blessings and curses. That's probably a strange concept for people today. My guess is people are pretty cool with the idea that if there is a God, He would bless them. Uh, we struggle with the idea that God might curse anybody. I mean, maybe really bad people, you know, Hitler and Osama bin Laden and, you know, butchers and really bad people. But like most people, he would bless them, right? Because God is generally decent, we, we would kind of think, if there is a God. You know, you, you ask people, what's God like? And I think for a lot of people today, God is uh, a friend or maybe God is um, sort of a cosmic EMT you know, you you dial them up in an emergency. You know, nine one one, help! I'm in a, I'm in a bind, and God woo, 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 comes and he fixes you, saves you again. I promise I'll, I'll be better. I'll change my life. You know, okay, don't worry about it. And then God goes away to heaven and to the hospital and waits for your call again. Um, or for some of us, God is the higher power who inspires us to overcome vices and addictions. Or maybe God is more like kind of a benevolent force in the world that if you stay positive and optimistic, you'll be able to channel that positive energy for the realization of whatever your dreams are. And, and whatever, however God is portrayed, it's typically in some kind of positive sense like that, where it's a God who would bless, but certainly not a God who would curse. A God who's kind of chilled out, hanging out, waiting for you if you need him. If not, that's cool. You've got your own life. But if you need me, I'm, I'm, I'm here. I can get involved with you. That kind of God would bless, but he would never curse. And there's bits of truth to those versions of God. I mean, God is a helper. He is a savior. He does rescue those who call out to him. But there's like big parts that are missing in that version of God. And, and one of the central things we learn about God from the Bible is that, yeah, he's a helper and he's a savior and he's the friend of sinners, but he's also 
Here's, here's the template. The Holy King. He's the King. And He calls forth our obedience. And He deserves it. Because He's Holy King. And gracious and loving, yes. But at the center is God on His throne. It's God entering into covenants with Israel saying, this is how you will be. Uh, I've been reading a little bit of Ezekiel lately with my two little kids. And we were reading Ezekiel 1 where the prophet Ezekiel has this vision of God on His throne. And, you know, it's great to ask my kids, like, why is God sitting on a throne? What does that mean? And they think about it. And my little seven-year-old goes, because He's the king? I'm like, Right. What does that mean? Let's think about it, that God is a king. And because he's a king, and because he's a holy king, he's not some messed up despot. He's the holy king. The thing about him is God is worthy. He's worthy of my obedience. He's worthy of my praise. He's worthy of my trust. He's worthy of my time. He's worthy of my money. He's worthy of my blood, sweat, and tears. He's worthy of my life. He's worthy. You know, there's so many people want stuff from me, but it's not worthy. But God is worthy of everything that I have to give and more because he's the holy king and he's my creator, the creator of heaven and earth. And so he calls that forth, not just from Israel, but in Adam, he calls it forth from all creation, obedience and love and honor and trust. And so when we we press in closer to God, when we align ourselves with Him and follow Him and honor Him as our King and love Him, we enter into the sphere of blessing. It's the the sphere of life. The sphere of joy is to be with God. And when we turn our backs on God and we go away searching for our own version of happiness, a self-created reality where we sort of take the role of our own God in some sense and try to create our own blessing, we, we move away from God and we forsake Him and we enter into the realm of the curse. You know, it's in Eden or out of Eden. It's in the promised land or out of the promised land. And it's all depending upon our obedience. Will, will we obey Him and trust Him? What does it look like when God blesses? What does it look like when God curses? We keep using those words, but let's get a little more specific. What does that feel like to be blessed by God or to be cursed? That's chapter 28. The whole of chapter 28 is a more nitty-gritty, detailed description of the the blessing of God and the curse of God. Uh, I won't read all of it, but let me just read some some highlights or some snippets, just give you a feel for it. Look at the blessing of God. What does it look like to be blessed by God? Look at chapter 28, verse 7. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. They will come at you from one direction, but flee from you in seven. The Lord will send a blessing on your barns and on everything you put your hand to. The Lord your God will bless you in the land He is giving you. The Lord will establish you as His holy people as He promised you on oath, if you keep the commands of the Lord your God and walk in His ways. Then all the peoples on earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will fear you. Verse 13, the Lord will make you the head, not the tail. If you pay attention to the commands of the Lord, your God, that I'm giving you this day and carefully follow them, you will always be at the top, never at the bottom. You know, that's the blessing of God. It's prosperity, it's safety, it's security, honor, glory, uh, dignity. 
That's what it's like to be near God because He is life. He is safety. He is glorious and wonderful. And of course, we've got to remember that these are the blessings of God sort of expressed in a very this-worldly sense, which is where Israel dwelt. It was kind of a very this-worldly kingdom. But Israel in the Old Testament prefigures the kingdom of God in the New Testament, which transcends this world, that looks forward to kind of an eternal blessing of God in the new creation. So, so, so there's an eternal aspect to this blessing we discover in the New Testament that goes on and on forever. I mean, that's what heaven is. It's to be with God forever. Happy, joyful, exhilarated, fulfilled because we are with Him. Because He is life. He is the joy itself. When you do a scan of what is best in the universe, there's only one contender. It's God. God is the greatest. He's the most beautiful, the most desirable, the most wonderful. And then there's this huge gap of infinite dimensions. And then there's like everything else. (laughs) And between everything else and God is the distance between the greatest thing and everything else. He is what our hearts desire, even if we don't realize it. And so that's the blessing of God, is is to have God ultimately and the life and the joy that, that comes in knowing Him. What's it like to be cursed by God? Well, verses 15... All the way to chapter six or verse sixty-eight. Look at that. There's homework assignment number two. Read that today, and just sit there and kind of meditate on the curse of God. It's heavy. Let me read some snippets. Verse twenty. The Lord will send on you curses, confusion, and rebuke, and everything you put your hands to until you're destroyed. And come to sudden ruin because of the evil you have done in forsaking him. The Lord will plague you with diseases until he has destroyed you from the land you are entering to possess. The Lord will strike you with wasting disease, with fever and inflammation, with scorching heat and drought, with blight and mildew, which will plague you until you perish. The sky over your head will be bronze, the ground beneath you iron. The Lord will turn the rain of your country into dust and powder. It will come down from the skies until you are destroyed. The Lord will cause you to be defeated before your enemies. You will come at them from one direction, but flee at them from seven. And you will become a thing of horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Look at verse 30. You will be pledged to be married to a woman, but another will take her and ravish her. You will build a house, but you will not live in it. You will plant a vineyard, but you will not even begin to enjoy its fruit. Your ox will be slaughtered before your eyes, but you'll eat none of it. Your donkey will be forcibly taken from you and will not be returned. Your sheep will be given to your enemies. No one will rescue them. Your sons and daughters will be given to another nation. I just find this so so powerful. You will wear out your eyes watching for them day after day. Powerless to lift a hand. You know, to be in misery and to be powerless to change your situation. Verse 45. All these curses will come upon you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you're destroyed. Because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees He gave you. They will be a sign and wonder to you and your descendants forever. And then just one more. Look at verse 65. Among those nations you will find no repose, no resting place for the sole of your foot. There the Lord will give you an anxious mind, eyes weary with longing, 
and a despairing heart. You will live in constant suspense, filled with dread, both night and day, never sure of your life. In the morning you will say, oh, if only it were evening. In the evening, if only it were morning. Because of the terrors that will fill your heart and the sights that your eyes will see. What a terrible thing to be under the curse of God. There's nothing worse than to have the power of God marshaled against you. And of course we realize, again, this is the temporal version of the curse of God. We come to the New Testament and we realize there is an eternal heightening and manifestation of this. You know, that's what hell is. Like, what's hell? You know, is that little guy with a red suit and a pitchfork. You know, what is in hell? Hell is the place of forever being under the curse of God. It's the curse with no respite. It, it goes on and on. It's the soul sinking down in despair with no hope for all eternity. Because we've rejected the infinite goodness and wonder of God. And so there's an infinite crime to match, a uh, punishment to match the crime. You know, we're afraid of so many things in this world. We're freaked out by the economy. It's like every day you look for good news. People keep talking about the recovery. It's like, what recovery was that exactly? You watch the foreign market. You look at the euro. I mean, it can really freak you out. People are freaked out about politics. People are scared to death that Obama will be president for another year. Other people are scared that one of the Republican candidates will be president for, for four years. Different people get scared by candidates. Some people on different sides of the aisle. It's the end of the world if this person becomes president. The end of the world if that person becomes president. Some people are terrified by uh, health issues. And we're, we're scared about things for our kids. We're, we're scared of a lot of things, some legitimate and some illegitimate. But we don't fear the one thing we really should fear, which is God Himself. You know, there is no fear of God in the land. Is there fear of God in the church? Do we fear Him? Do we stand in awe at Him as the Holy King? What is it that really has us uh, in our place, in a sense? And until we fear God, we'll never start asking the right questions. You know, one of the things that happens in a revival, when great awakenings come upon a people like happened here in New England in the 18th century. When, when revivals come, one of the common characteristics is that people start to fear the Lord. And people start to stand in awe of God. And they start to say, God is holy. And, and when people fear the Lord, we start to ask the right questions. And the right question isn't what's going to happen to the economy, even though that's a, a good, legitimate, interesting question that affects us all. No question about that. But, but it's not the highest question we need to be asking. The highest question we should be asking is, how can I, a sinful person, escape the curse and receive the blessing? When we start to see that the biggest issue facing us is dealing with our Maker, how do I escape the curse and receive the blessing? And it's not until I begin to really fear God and start to ask the right questions, to be scared of the right things, to be concerned about the right things, or most concerned about those things. How do I escape the curse and receive the blessing of God? That I will be ready to hear the right answer and be open to the answer, which is that God has answered the question for us by sending His own Son, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus is God's answer to the question, how can we escape the curse and receive the blessing? Think about Jesus just briefly as I wrap up here. Just think about Jesus through the twin lenses of blessing and curse that go together. A blessing and a curse. Jesus, think about him through the lens of blessing. Jesus secured the blessing. He's the one guy who kept all the rules, who obeyed the Father perfectly so that he actually earns and deserves the eternal blessing of God. It's all his. All the honor is his. All the life is his. All the power and glory are his. Because he was the faithful son, as the Father said, uh, you are my beloved son and you I'm well pleased. And so Jesus is the one who has earned and garnered the blessing of God by keeping the law. And Jesus is the one who's dealt with the curse. Because not only did he live a perfect perfect life, he went to the cross, and on the cross, the curse of God was poured out on him on the cross. Um, You know, it says in Galatians 3 that he redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Because cursed is anyone who is hung on a tree. And so when Jesus was on the cross and he was crying out in a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was crying that because the curse of God was upon him in that moment. You know, that cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is the cry from hell. To be forsaken by God forever. To be despairing. And there he was on the cross, the beloved Son of God bearing a curse that wasn't his own. It was ours. But on the third day, of course, he rose from the dead. Because... He was bearing my curse, not his. And he had earned the blessing. And so even though he had borne a curse, because he had earned the blessing, life was his. Death could not hold him. He rose from the dead because it's all his. And now Christ is alive and he extends his hands to welcome anybody who will come to him and be in him to receive him by faith. And what's so cool is once we receive Christ by faith, we become in him. And his blessings become our blessings. And my curse becomes his curse. And he's born it. That's amazing. That I, that I have hope of eternal life and blessing. Not because I'm anything or because of my report card. But because Christ has secured the blessing. And he's sharing it with his people. Freely. And I don't have to worry about the curse. Despite my report card. Because I know that it has been born by Christ. And so my confidence before God rests squarely on Jesus who has earned my blessing and borne my curse and nothing can separate me from Him. What what confidence does she give us as Christians? What strength as Christians? We, We can face sin in our lives. One of the things we wrestle with even as Christians is temptation and sin, shortcomings in our character. And, and, you know, the, the way you battle sin is by replacing your desire to sin with a greater desire. And that greater desire is Christ himself. When I'm becoming more and more excited about Christ, knowing him and being in a relationship with him, what happens is it's like the sunlight and water of my affections go here and, and those affections for Christ grow and my affections for the things of the world start to wither like a plant that has no water and no sunlight because... I desire something greater. So if you want to desire something greater, there's nothing greater to desire than Jesus and the hope of blessings in Him. 
It's that identity of being in Christ, of sharing His blessing and Him taking my curse. It's that being in Jesus that, um, that helps me get through the hard times. You know, you go through difficult times in life and, and, and you know that God is still with you because Christ has died for you. Uh, some of us here have gone through hard times in life. It would be interesting to find out who's had the hardest life. I don't know. We had a, be like American Idol, you know, we could bring different contestants up on stage. People would tell their stories, we could all vote, you know, find out who's had the hardest life. Like somebody here has probably had a harder life than somebody. Well, you think that's bad. You should hear what happened to me. This is how I grew up. And we, we could all compare notes and talk about whose life has been the worst. Okay, let's say we could find the person on planet Earth whose life has been the worst, the hardest life possible. That person's whole life would be overshadowed by the person who'd been in hell for five minutes. And, and we're free from that. You know, if you're in Christ, this right here is as close to hell as you'll ever get. That's it. Yeah, we live in this world that is tainted, is polluted. We struggle. We Someday we eventually die. We go through, you know, we trudge through the sewer of this world sometimes. We wonder when things are going to change. It's really hard. It can be a long struggle. Uh, but man, we should, as Christians should have a smile on our face, even as we're trudging through the sewer. It's like, I know where I'm going. He is mine and I am His. The blessing is secure. The curse is lifted. And I know that even the sewer experience right now is somehow being used by Him for victory. So like, wow. Keep going, Christians. Have an eternal perspective. Like that, uh, that cheesy bumper sticker, you know, think globally, act locally. Here's another kind of corny one. You know, think eternally, live temporally. Think eternally. Keep the picture of who you are in Christ. And in light of that, live here and now for His glory, even when you've got to go through the tough stuff. And I don't know uh, if you're in Christ. I just want you to also know that Christ's arms are always open today for those who would just come to Him. How do you become a Christian? You turn from your sin and you put your faith in Jesus. That's it. There's no class you go through to become a Christian. There's no ritual we can do over you in the church that makes you a Christian. You don't become a Christian because you grew up that way. A seminary degree doesn't make you a Christian. The way you become a Christian is you just come to Jesus empty-handed and say, all I have is sin. Will you take it on the cross? And Jesus, I need your blessing. And so by simple faith, I, I just come to you, Christ, and I want to follow you as I am. And trust in Him to save you. That's all it takes to turn to Him. And when you have Christ, there's nothing to fear, you know? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, and all these things are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we love You. We glorify You. And that Jesus, we want to praise You this morning because You alone have earned the blessing. You alone could bear our curse. And Lord, You open Your heart up to us to be Your people. 
as we are. We thank you, Lord, that we don't have to get ourselves fixed up before we can come to you. We just have to acknowledge that only you can save us. God, I pray that you would give us confidence in you. I pray that you would give this church continuing revelations of your beauty and majesty. I pray, Lord, that those who are far from you, who want to come to you, would just come to you at the cross and lay down their burden and open their arms to embrace you, Lord. I pray that those who are uh, struggling with sin, because that's all of us, would learn to delight in you more than our sinful responses. God, I pray that uh, those of us who are uh, uh, just trudging and sludging through the swamp and the muck of life, that we would be filled up with joy as we delight in the blessings you've given us. God, we know it's real. Just our eyes are so blind and so unfocused. Help us to see you, Jesus, in a fresh light today. And may all those who seek you find you, Lord. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.